female folk singer is dead after she was attacked by a pair of coyotes. What is the monkey doing? Tell me what's going on. He ripped her face off! We actually have a trainer in the water with one of our whales. If I show weakness, if I retreat, I may be hurt, I may be killed. Baby Azaria Chamberlain was taken by a dingo back in 1980. Hello and welcome back everybody to Man It Is, the only true crime podcast on the internet where all the killers are real animals, whether it's biting, scratchings, maulings or clawings, we are here to talk about it and we are back Baby, this is the first episode of 2024. Happy New Year. I missed you a lot. I missed your face. I missed your smell. And you know what? Weird development. I've missed your feet. Uh, That's right. My New Year's resolution for 2024 was to get a weird fetish. And I thought I'd pick the least weird of the weird fetishes. Feet. Uh, That's a joke. I I really, I don't want to, I don't want to start us off on the wrong foot. (laughs) Foot fetish joke. Uh, I don't have a foot fetish. Um, But I am, I do have a fetish for podcasters <laughs> for podcasts and i am back um guys i hope you had a great christmas uh and a holiday season whatever your faith may be or may not be i hope you had a great time doing it um well yeah we're back it's uh the end of january i'm recording this i basically took a week uh, a month off uh for my own mental health uh but i'm back today with a really great story uh there's a bit of backstory to go with this story and i'll get into that in a moment um but yeah i really i, I wanted to quickly say thank you uh firstly to everyone who sent so many lovely messages to me uh, over the holidays, uh, it warmed my little heart to the core. Um, it was it was great, and I, I've I've spoken to. I don't know what happened in the last week, but I had so many people messaging me in the last week. Uh, just some really nice things. Um, so I won't I won't mention them all right now. Um, maybe at the end, I'll give some people some shout outs. But yeah, I'm so excited to be back, everyone. Um, I've been, you know, the first few weeks of my break, I was like, I'm not missing this at all. And then, like, uh, two weeks ago, I was kind of like, oh, I, sh- I should probably write a podcast. And then I got back into it this week and wrote the script. And I am actually I'm actually so pumped to be back. Um, so if you're listening to this, thank you very much. And, uh, he- yeah, I'm really pumped. I do have another really exciting update as well. Um, Man It Is Now has a website. <laughs> That's crazy. And we do. There's a there's a website. Uh, what's it's called? Manitispod.com. Um, so you can go there and uh, basically support the podcast by buying some merchandise. That's correct. Um, yeah, we have official Man It Is merchandise. That was one of the um, suggestions in the podcast feedback survey that I sent around at the end of last year. Um, was was merch. I, I didn't think you'd want it, but you do want it, apparently. We've got t-shirts, we've got baseball caps, we've got drink bottles, and we've got mugs, and that's it. That's basically it for now. That's it. It's a very limited, uh, you know, collection. But you can head to manitispod.com, uh, link in the bio, uh, and purchase your very own merchandise and support the show that way. Of course, there is a Patreon as well. Uh, you can do that. But that, that's, you know, that's neither here or there. Let's Let's just stop talking about money. It's unbecoming for both of us. It does. It's not a good look. Okay. Let's not talk money. Let's not talk merch. And let's talk. Let's talk man eaters, guys. So today we are continuing the story of the tiger of Chalga. Now, a little bit of backstory here. Um, we actually, I actually did the first part of this series almost a year ago. <laughs> 29th of March, 2023, I released episode 50, The Tiger of Chowgar, part one. And I expected that to be a two-part series. I'll be, I'll be completely honest with what happened. This is a year ago. I wasn't the um, the seasoned podcaster slash researcher that I am now. Um, and I kind of just like read the book. Like I was, This is from um, Jim Corbett's book, The Man Eaters of Kamoan. And I read the chapter and I got up to the first, you know, pivotal moment and I was like oh that must be half the story I'll do the other half next week and then I recorded the first episode and then I went to start researching for the second episode and I realized oh this story is not even close to being finished it's massive um and basically I just didn't get a chance to come back to it for the whole for the whole year but I've had my little break 
and we are going to tell the entire story of the Tigers of Chiaga. So if you would like, and if you haven't listened to it yet, I recommend going back and listening to episode 50, The Tiger of Chiaga, part one, uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're going to start today with part two of that story, but I will give you a little bit of a catch up um, before we get you know into the nitty gritty of the rest of the story. So that's what we're going to do, guys. Um, take a what do, what, what do I want you to do? Uh, take a seat. That's right. Take a seat. Make a sandwich. And here we go. <laughs> I'm a little rusty on how this whole recording thing works. Um, let's do. How about we just? How about we just jump into it, guys? Here we go. Part two of the Tiger of Chalga. So, to catch you up to speed, if you haven't listened to the first part of the story, Jim Corbett was informed that there was a man-eating tiger, known as the Tiger of Chowgar, that had killed hundreds of people, and he had been put in charge of hunting and killing it. Now, when we got to the end of the last episode, he had found not just one tiger, but two. He reasoned that it must be the Tiger of Chowgar, which was a female Bengal tiger, and its offspring. Now, he aimed, and he fired, and he was trying to hit the mother, because the mother was the real man-eater here. The cu- the cub, or I shouldn't call it the cub, the offspring, the male offspring, it was not necessarily a man-eater, but it had been raised by a man-eater, so it was also kind of designated to be shot and killed. So, he aimed his rifle, and he knew he was only going to get one shot off before the other tiger escaped. He was aiming for the mother, but either he misidentified which one the mother was, or his shot missed. The mother got away. And he killed the offspring. So, he has been lamenting and regretting this uh, mistake for a while. And this mistake would lead to the deaths of dozens of other people. The mother was really the dangerous one. So, Jim has been sitting on a hillside, lamenting his mistake. Perched on a hillside, Jim's tent overlooked a broad vista. The Nandor River Valley lay directly below him. And on the far side rose a barren peak, 9,000 feet in elevation. That evening, as Corbett sat on the edge of a terraced field, the government map laid out beside him and a pair of decent binoculars in his hand, the villagers pointed him to the precise locations of 20 human deaths over the previous three years. Over a 40-square-mile span, these killings were dispersed quite equally. Jim chose to tether his four young buffalo on the cattle roads that led to the open forests in this location. Corbett visited the buffaloes in the morning, searched the jungles during the day, and tied out the buffaloes at night. For the next ten days, there was no word of the tigress. The news that a cow had been killed on a ravine on the hill above his tent on the eleventh day, however, gave him hope. Upon inspecting the carcass, Corbett was reassured that the cow had actually been killed by an elderly leopard whose pug marks he had frequently observed. Corbett chose to hunt the leopard because the locals had been complaining for a number of years that he was severely harming their goats and animals. Jim found the necessary cover in a shallow cave beside the dead cow. Shortly after entering the cave, Corbett saw the leopard approaching from the other side of the ravine. He raised his rifle to take a shot, when he heard a frantic voice screaming out to him from the settlement. This urgent call could only have one cause, and much to the leopard's dismay, Corbett grabbed his hat and bolted from the cave, who, while Corbett scrambled up the side of the ravine, the leopard laid himself out flat on the ground and then with an enraged woof went rushing back the way he had come. At the top of the ravine, he cried to the man that he was coming, and he started to run to join him. After sprinting all the way uphill from the settlement, the man told him that a woman had just been slain by the man-eater around a half a mile away on the opposite side of the village. Corbett noticed a group of people gathered in the courtyard that had already been mentioned as they dashed through the slope. Once more, no one noticed him approaching down the tiny road. Corbett glanced over the heads of the gathered men and noticed a girl sitting on the ground. She was sitting with her head thrown back and her hands resting on the ground behind her for support. Her young body had almost been ripped apart. The only movement she made was heaving up and down of her breast, where the blood that was flowing down her face and neck congealed into a sticky mess. Soon after, somebody noticed Jim and arranged for him to go up to the girl. As Corbett was tending to her wounds, 
A group of people spoke simultaneously and told him that the girl had been attacked on a relatively open ground in full view of several people, including the girl's husband, and that the tiger had fled the girl after becoming alarmed by the, consume, by the combined cries and fled into the forest, leaving the girl for dead where she had just fallen. The girl had since regained consciousness and returned to the village. The group knew that she would surely die from her injuries in a few minutes, and they would carry her back to the scene of the attack so Corbett could sit over the corpse and shoot the tiger. The girl's eyes never left Jim's face as they gave him this information. They followed every motion that he made with the look of a scared and injured animal. Clear air for the lady to breathe, space to work around without hindrance, and silence to gather his thoughts were all essential, and Corbett's means of obtaining them from the crowd were not as kind as they could have been. Upon the hasty departure of the final men, Corbett directed the women who had hitherto stayed in the background to warm water and to rent his shirt, which was relatively clean and dry, into bandages. Before the girl that Corbett had dispatched for the scissors returned with the only pair the town could make, she added the water and bandages were ready. The widow had used them to dig potatoes when they were discovered in the long-dead tailor's home. He made a futile attempt to bring the eight-inch-long rusty blades together, but in futility chose to ignore the thick tangles of blood-stained hair. Two deep claw wounds were the primary injuries of the girl. The first began at the eyes and ran over her head, down to the nape of the neck, leaving the scalp hanging in two parts. The second wound began in close proximity to the first and ran over the forehead, stopping at the right ear. Apart from the unsightly gaping wounds, there were also several deep scratches on her right breast, her right shoulder, and the right side of her neck. There was also a severe cut on the girl's right hand, which presumably was caused when the girl raised her hand in a futile attempt to protect herself from the tiger. Years ago, after returning from a morning of tiger shooting with a doctor friend, Corbett was, re- Corbett was given a two-ounce vial of yellow fluid from his doctor friend, which he encouraged him to keep with him every time Corbett went shooting. After more than a year of carrying the bottle inside the pocket of his shooting jacket, some of the fluid had evaporated, but the bottle was still three-quarters full. Corbett knocked the cork off the bottle and poured the contents all over the wound. After doing this, Corbett covered the the girl's head with a bandage in an attempt to keep her scalp in one place. The women trailed behind as he brought the girl to her home, a single room that served as her living area, kitchen, and nursery. In an open basket, a baby was inside, begging to be fed, hung from a rafter close to the door. Corbett could not handle the complexity of this situation, so he left the resolution to the group of women. When Corbett finally paid the girl a visit ten days later, on the eve of his departure, he saw her, sitting on the doorstep with her baby, sound asleep on her lap. She was relieved that her young sister had mistakenly taken the wrong pair of scissors from the tailor's widow, as a shorn head is a sign of widowhood. Her wounds, with the exception of a sore at the nape of her neck where the tiger's claws had penetrated deep into the flesh, had all mostly healed. She also smiled as she parted her abundant black hair to show him where the scalp had made a perfect join. Corbett did state in his book that if his friend the doctor ever read his words, he should know that the small bottle of yellow liquid that he so kindly gave him helped to save the life of a very courageous young woman. Corbett's men had acquired a goat while Corbett was caring for the girl. Corbett discovered the location of the attack by following the girl's blood trail back to it. After tying a goat to a bush, Corbett climbed into the sole nearby stunted oak tree and got ready for an all-night watch. With his seat only a few feet from the ground and her food yet unfinished, snatching sleep was not an option. (coughs) But Corbett heard nothing during the night and saw nothing. After attacking the girl, Corbett discovered that the tigress had gone up the valley for a half a mile to where the cattle route crossed the Nandor River. He had a hard time to accomplish this previous evening. It had travelled two kilometres down the path before coming to an intersection with the forest road atop the ridge above Dalkinia. Corbett lost the tracks here on this hard terrain. The residents of all the nearby villages stayed as close to their homes as they could for the next two days. 
On the third day, runners brought Jim word that a man-eater had taken another victim victim at Lohali, a village five miles south of Dalkinia. The runners claimed to have travelled ten miles via the woodland road, but they only travelled five miles by the shortcut they suggested him using in return. Soon after making his preparations, Corbett and four guides started out a little after lunchtime. His guides could not provide him with details, but a very steep ascent of the two miles got them to the crest of the high hill south of Dalkinia in the view of the valley three miles below where the kill was supposed to have taken place. Questioned about the small ruined hut near where they were resting under the shelter of a great rock, Corbett was told the following story by the men. Quote, The top of the hill on which we stood was bare of trees, and while Corbett regained his breath and had a smoke, his companions pointed out the landmarks. Four years earlier, a foreigner to the village, who had all the winter been sending packages of fur, salt, and other commodities from the bazaars at the foothills to the interior of the district, had built the hut with the object of resting and fattening his flock of goats through the summer and rains, and getting them fit for the next winter's work. After a few weeks, the goats wandered down the hill and damaged his informant's crops, and when they came up to the lodge to, to protest, they found the hut empty, and the fierce sheepdog these men invariably keep with them to guard their camps at night was chained to an iron stake and very much dead. Foul play was suspected, and the next day the men were collected from adjoining villages and a search party was organised. Pointing to an oak tree scorned by lightning about 400 yards, his informant said that under it, the remains of the man were found. His skull and a few splinters of bone and his clothes had also been found. This was the Chalgarth man-eater's first human victim. There was no way of climbing down the dangerous hill from where they were sitting, and the men informed him that they should have to proceed half a mile along the track to where they, would f- where they would find a very steep and rough track which would take them straight down past their village to Lohali, where they could see the valley below. They had covered about half the distance they had to go along the ridge, when all at once, and without being able to ascribe any reason to it, Corbett felt as if they were being followed. Arguing with himself against this feeling was to no avail. There was only one man-eater in this area, and she had procured a kill three miles away, which she was not likely to leave. However, the uneasy feeling persisted, and as they were now in the widest part of the grassy ridge, Corbett made the men sit down, instructing them not to move until Corbett returned, and he set out to investigate. Retracing his steps to where they had first come out on the ridge, Corbett entered the jungle and carefully worked around the open ground and back to where the men were sitting. No alarm call of an animal or bird indicated that the tiger was anywhere in the vicinity, but from there, on Corbett, But from then on, Corbett made the four men walk in front of him while Corbett brought up the rear, with a thumb on the safety catch and a constant look behind. When they arrived at the little village his companions had started from, they asked permission to leave him. Corbett was very glad of this request, for he had a mile of dense scrub jungle to go through, and though the feeling that Corbett was being followed had long since vanished, Corbett felt safer and more comfortable with only his own life to guard. A little below the outlying terraced fields, and where the dense scrub started, was a crystal clear spring of water, from which the village drew its water supply. Here, in the soft wet ground, Jim found fresh pug marks of the man-eater. These pug marks, coming from the direction of the village Corbett was making for, coupled with the uneasy feeling Corbett had experienced on the ridge above, convinced him that something had gone quite wrong with the tiger's kill, and that his quest would be fruitless. As Corbett emerged from the scrub jungle, Corbett came into view of Lohali, which consisted of five or six small houses. Near the door of one of these houses, a group of people were collected. As Jim approached across the narrow terraced fields and steep open terrain, several men broke away from the group by the door and moved forward to greet him. One of them, an elderly man, knelt to touch his feet and begged him to save his daughter's life. The man's story was as short as it was tragic. His daughter, who was a widow and was the only relative he left in the world, had gone out at about 10 o'clock to collect dry sticks, 
which to cook which they would use to cook their midday meal. A small stream rolls through the valley, and on the far side of the stream from the village the hill goes steeply up. On the lowest slope of this hill, there are a few terraced fields. At the edge of the lowest field, at a distance of about 150 yards from the home, the woman has started collecting sticks. A little bit later, women who were washing their clothes in the, stre- in the stream heard a scream, and upon looking up, saw the woman and a tiger disappearing together in the dense thorn bushes, which extended from the edge of the field right down to the stream. Dashing back to the village, the women tried to raise an alarm. The frightened villagers made no attempt at a rescue, and a message for help was shouted to a village higher up in the valley, from where it was tossed back to the village from where the four men had set out to find Jim Corbett. Half an hour after the message had been sent, the wounded woman crawled home. Her story was that she had seen the tiger just as it was about to pounce on her, and as there was no time to run, she had jumped down the almost perpendicular hillside, and while she was in the air, the tiger had caught her, and they had gone over the hill together. She remembered nothing further until she regained consciousness and found herself near the stream, and being unable to call for help, she had crawled back to the village on her hands and her knees. While this story was being told, the men arrived at the door of the house. After making the people stand back from the door, which was the only opening in the room's four walls, Corbett removed the bloodstained sheet from the woman, whose miserable condition Corbett would not even attempt to describe in his book. If Corbett had been a licensed physician, equipped with contemporary medicine as opposed to just a regular man carrying a small amount of permanganate of potash in his pocket, it would not have been possible to save the woman's life. The deep cuts on her face, neck, and other parts of her body had already turned septic in the warm, poorly ventilated house, fortunately leaving her only partially conscious. It was now too late to reconsider going back to his camp, so somewhere to spend the night would have to be found. A short distance upstream from where the woman had been doing their laundry was a massive pipal tree, surrounded by a foot-tall masonry platform that the villagers used for religious ceremonies. It was a strange place for Jim to spend the night, but anywhere was better than the village, and that dark room with its warm atmosphere and swarm of buzzing flies, where a woman in agony fought desperately for every breath. Corbett undressed on the platform and bathed in the stream, and when the wind had carried out the functions of a towel, he dressed again, put his back to the tree, laying the loaded rifle by his side, and prepared to see the night out. The loud crying of the other village women heralded the end of the suffering woman's troubles, and burial arrangements were well in advance when Corbett went through the village at daybreak. Based on the experiences of both the unfortunate women and the girl in Dalkinia, it was now clear that the elderly tigress had relied heavily on her cub to kill the humans that she'd attacked. Typically, only one victim out of every hundred attacked by man-eaters escapes, but in this instance it was clear that more people would be mauled than killed outright. And since the closest hospital was 50 miles away, Corbett returned to Nanital and pleaded with the local government to send a supply of disinfectants and dressings to every village headman in the Manita area. Upon his next visit, Corbett was relieved to hear that his request had been granted and that the disinfectants had saved many, many lives. Corbett remained at Dalkinia for an additional week, and on a Saturday declared that he would depart on the following Monday. Having been in the Manita's territory for nearly a month, the constant stress of sleeping in an open tent and walking miles during the day with the possibility that each step would be his last was starting to rack Corbett's nerves. The villagers were shocked to hear of his announcement and only agreed to stop persuading him to change his mind when Corbett assured them that he would be back soon. On Sunday morning, after breakfast, Corbett received a visit from the headman of Dalkinia, who asked him to shoot some game before he left. He complied, and 30 minutes later, with a clip of cartridges and a .275 rifle, Corbett set out for the hill on the far side of Nandor River, where he had seen Gural feeding frequently from his camp. Corbett's companions included four villagers and one of his own men. Along with him, was a tall, gaunt man with a horribly disfigured face. One of the villagers 
who had visited his camp on a regular basis and who, seeing him a good listener, had told and retold his encounter with Amanda so many times that Corbett could, in his sleep, recite the entire account. Now, this story is best told in the disfigured man's very own words. Do you see that pine tree, Sahib, at the bottom of the grassy slope on the shoulder of the hill? Yes, the pine tree with a big white rock to the east of it. Well, it was at the upper edge of this grassy slope that the man-eater attacked me. The grassy slope is as perpendicular as that wall of a house, but none hillman couldn't find a foothold in. My son, who was eight years old at the time, and I cut grass on the slope on the day of my misfortune, carrying the grass up in armfuls to the belt of the trees where the ground is level. I was stooping down at the very edge of the slope, tying the grass into a big bundle, when the tiger sprang at me and buried its teeth, one under my right eye, one in my chin, and the other two here in the back of my neck. The tiger's mouth struck me with a great blow, and I fell over on my back, while the tiger lay on top of me, chest to chest, with its stomach between my legs. While falling backwards, I had flung out my arms, and my right hand had come into contact with an oak sapling. As my fingers grasped the sapling, an idea came to me. My legs were free, and if I could draw them up and insert my feet under against the tiger's belly, I might be able to push the tiger off and run away. The pain, as the tiger crushed all the bones on the right side of my face, was terrible. But I did not lose consciousness, for you see, Sahib, at the time, I was a young man, and all the hills there were no one to compare me with strength. Very slowly, so as to not anger the tiger, I drew my legs up on either side of it, and gently inserted my bare feet against its belly. Then, placing my left hand against its chest and pushing and kicking upward with all my might, I lifted the tiger right off the ground, and, they being very on the very edge of the perpendicular hellside, I went crashing down and likely would have taken me with him had his hold on the sapling not been a good one. My son had been too frightened to run away, and when the tiger had gone, I took his loincloth from him and wrapped it around my head, and holding his hand, I walked back to the village. Arriving at my home, I told my wife to call all my friends together, for I wished to see their faces before I died. When my friends were assembled and saw my condition, they wanted to put me on a gurney and carry me fifty miles to the Almora Hospital, but this I would not consent to, for my suffering was great, and being sure that my time had come, I wanted to die where I had been born, and where I had lived all my life. Water was brought, for I was thirsty and my head was on fire, but when it was poured into my mouth, it all flowed out through the holes in my neck. Thereafter, for a period beyond measure, there was great confusion in my mind, and much pain in my head and my neck, and while I waited and longed for death to end my suffering, my wounds healed themselves, and I became well. And now, Sahib, I am as you see me, old and thin, with white hair and a face that no man can look at without repulsion. My enemy lives, and continues to claim victims, but do not be deceived into thinking that it is a tiger, for it is no tiger, but an evil spirit, who, when it craves human flesh and blood, takes on for a little whilst the semblance of a tiger. But they say you are a sadhu, Sahib, and the spirits that guard sadhus are more powerful than this evil spirit, as is proved by the fact that you spent three days and three nights alone in the jungle, and came out as your men said you would alive and unhurt. Observing the man's massive build, it was simple for Jim to imagine him as a true giant, and he certainly must have been strong since no man could have possibly lifted a tigress into the air, ripped its hold off his head, removing half of his face in the process, and thrown it down the steep hill, unless he had been endowed with strength far beyond the average. Corbett's skinny friend served as their guide, leading the group down a twisty, steep path to the valley below. They forded the Nandhor River, crossed several wide terrace fields that were now abandoned due to the man-eater fear, and began what turned out to be an extremely difficult climb through the forest to the grassy slopes above. Although his friend was skinny, he was not lacking in speed, 
and Corbett was only able to keep up with him by stopping frequently to quote-unquote take in the scenery. Corbett and his group located some gurals and shot a couple of them. One of the gurals attempted to flee, but a large Himalayan black bear lumbered out of a ravine on the side of the grassy slope and came at a fast trot along the cattle track, never pausing or looking back. When he arrived to the goat, he sat down and took it into his lap. Perhaps he hurried over its shot or allowed too much time for reflection, but the bullet that Jim fired went low and hit the bear in the stomach instead of the chest. To the six men who were observing, it seemed as the bear took the blow from the gural as an attack, because rearing up, he came galloping along the track, emitting angry grunts. As the man retrieved the two gural, Corbett went down to investigate the blood trail. The bear had clearly been hit hard, but even so, it would have been dangerous to pursue it with an empty rifle, since bears are naturally ill-tempered and very unpleasant to deal with when shot in the stomach. A brief war council was held when the men returned to camp. Camp was about three and a half miles away, and, it was, and as it was already 2pm, they would not be able to require additional ammunition, find and kill the bear, and return home before dark, so they all agreed to follow. The men set out, Corbett leading the way, followed by three men in the rear being brought up by two men, each with a gural strapped to his back. The hill was steep and pretty clear of undergrowth, and by keeping above the bear, there was a sporting chance of being able to accomplish the task without serious mishap. So they set out, trying to finish off the wound animal with stones and an axe. When they reached the spot where Corbett had fired his final shot, the men were greatly encouraged by the sight of more blood on the track, 200 yards on. The blood trail descended into a deep ravine, and here they separated their force, two men going on the far side, Corbett and the axe's owner staying on the near side, and the men carrying the gural, trailing behind. On the word being given, they started to advance down the hill. In the bed of the ravine, and 50 feet below the men, was a dense patch of stunted bamboo, and when a stone was thrown into the thicket, the bear raised up with a scream of rage, and six men, putting on their best foot foremost, went straight down the hill. Corbett was not trained to this form of exercise, and on looking back to see if the bear was gaining on them, Corbett saw, much to his relief, that it had turned and gone hard downhill as they were going uphill. A shout to his companions and a rapid change of direction, and they were off in a full cry, rapidly gaining on the bear. A few well-aimed shots had been registered, followed, followed by the delighted shouts from marksmen and angry grunts from the bear. When at a sharp bend in the ravine, which necessarily which necessitated a cautious advance, they lost sight of the bear. To have followed the blood trail would have been an easy to have followed the blood trail would have been easy, but here the ravine was full of big rocks, behind any of which the bear might have been lurking. So, while unencumbered, the men sat down for a rest. A cast was made on either side of the ravine. While his companion went forward to look down the ravine, Corbett went to the right to prospect a rocky cliff that went sheer down for two hundred feet. Grasping a tree for balance, Corbett bent down and observed the bear resting on a slender precipice about 40 feet below him. Gathering a stone weighing roughly 30 pounds, Corbett moved to the edge and, fearing he would topple over, raised the stone with both hands above his head and threw it. The stone struck the ledge just inches from the bear's head and he scrambled to his feet, disappearing from Jim's view, only to reappear on the hillside a minute later. The hunt was on again, but this time the ground was less covered with rocks and more open, so the four men running could easily keep up with the bear. They ran at full speed for a mile or more, until they eventually cleared the forest and emerged onto the terrace fields, where rainwater had cut several narrow, deep channels across the fields, the bear taking refuge in one of these channels. The lone armed member of the group... The man with the distorted face was unanimously chosen to be the executioner. He approached the bear with caution, and swinging his exquisitely polished axe high, he struck the bear squarely on the skull. The outcome was startling and unanticipated. The axe head bounced off the bear's skull as if it had struck a block of rubber, and the animal reared up on its hind legs with a scream of rage. Luckily, he did not pursue his advantage as the men were huddled together and obstructed each other's paths while running. 
It was now Corbett's turn to wield the axe. However, the bear resented his approach after being struck once, and it took Corbett a great deal of manoeuvring to finally get within striking distance. Corbett had always wanted to work as a lumberjack in Canada, and he was skilled enough with an axe to split a match head, so he had no fear, unlike the owner of the axe, that the axe would glance off or break off onto the stones. When Corbett finally got close enough, he buried the entire blade of the axe in the bear's skull. The Indian hill folk place a great value on Himalayan bear skins, so when Corbett told the axe owner that he could skin have the skin along with a double double portion of the gural meat, he was extremely proud and envious. Corbett left the men, whose numbers were rapidly increasing with new arrivals from the village, to skin and divide up the kill, and as previously mentioned, he paid a final visit to the injured girl. It had been a tiring day, and if the man-eater had visited him that evening, she would have caught him napping. The road Corbett had taken to reach Dalkinia consisted of several long, steep climbs up the treeless hills. Upon complaining to the villagers about the discomforts of this road, they recommended that Corbett return by the way of Hira Khan, which would require just one climb to the ridge above the village, after which it would be all downhill to Rani Bar, from whence Corbett would make the rest of his way to the Nani Tal by car. After warning his men the previous evening to get ready for an early start, Corbett left them to gather supplies and to follow him, saying goodbye to his friends at Dalkinia and beginning the two-mile ascent to the forest road on the ridge above. Corbett used a different footpath, the one that the villagers used to travel to and from the foothill bazaars, than the one that his men used to get to Dalkinia. After a week of no news about the Tigress, Corbett became even more cautious, and within an hour of leaving camp, he reached an open glade near the top of the hill, just a hundred yards from the forest road. The path meandered in and out of deep ravines, through thick forests of oak and pine, and through dense undergrowth. The glade was pear-shaped, measuring about 50 yards wide by 100 yards long. In the middle of the glade was a stagnant pool of rainwater that was used by Sandbar and other animals as a drinking place and a place to get to wallow. Curious to see the tracks surrounding the pool, Corbett veered off the path, skirting the left side of the glade and passing under a rock cliff that extended up the road. As Corbett got closer to the pool, he noticed the pug marks of the tigress in the soft earth near the water's edge. Had Corbett kept a watchful eye, both ahead and behind, he could have caught sight of her before she did, but even with that missed opportunity, the odds were now clearly in his favour. She had approached the pool from the same direction as Corbett had, and, clearly unsettled by him, had crossed the water and disappeared into the thicket of trees and scrub jungle on the glade's right-hand side. The tiger must have noticed Corbett, or else she would not have hurried across the pool and sought cover, as her tracks indicated. Seeing him, she also saw that Corbett was alone, and observing him from cover, as she certainly was, she would assume Corbett was going to the pool to drink, as she had done. His movements up to this point had been quite natural, and if Corbett could manage to convince the tiger that he was oblivious to her presence, perhaps she would give him another chance. Bending down and keeping a sharp eye out from under his hat, Corbett coughed several times, splattered water everywhere, and then, moving very slowly and gathering dry sticks en route, he proceeded to the base of a steep rock. Here, Corbett built a fire, rested his back across the rock, and lit a cigarette. The rim of his hat, though it shaded his eyes effectively, did not obstruct the vision, and Corbett, inch by inch, scanned every bit of the jungle within his range of view. Not a leaf or blade of grass stirred. His men, whom Corbett had instructed to keep close together and sing from the moment they left camp until they joined him on the forest road, were not due for another hour and a half, and during this time it was quite possible that the tigress could break cover and try to stalk or rush him. Therefore, Corbett had only his front guard to watch and felt quite safe. Corbett says in his book that time can be cruel sometimes. Although his left arm, which had long fallen asleep, the men singing in the va valley below reached him too soon. The voices became louder, and eventually Corbett saw the men coming around a sharp bend, where the tigress had possibly seen him, and where she turned around to go back after finishing her drink. Another missed opportunity. The last one on this trip was gone.
Following their rest, Corbett's men ascended to the road and began what turned out to be an arduous 20-mile march to the forest rest house at Haira Khan. The route initially passed through a few hundred yards of open ground before entering a dense forest, at which point Corbett ordered his men to wall in front of him while he led the rear. After travelling about two miles in this order, Corbett noticed a man sitting on the road herding buffaloes. It was now time to call a halt for breakfast, so Corbett asked the men asked the man where they could obtain some water. He pointed straight ahead and replied that there was a spring there, and that his village just around the shoulder of the hill. Nonetheless, we did not they did not need to descend the hill for water because they had some. The man's village was at the upper end of the valley, where the women where the woman had been killed the week before. He informed him that nothing had been heard about the man since, and that it might be at the other end of the district. Corbett told the man that he was severely misled and told him that he had found new pug marks near the pool and he strongly advised him to gather his buffaloes and return to the village. His ten buffaloes were straggling up towards the road and he promised to leave as soon as they had grazed up to where he was sitting. Corbett gave him a cigarette and left him with a closing warning. When the man eventually got home that day, he told the assembled villagers of his meeting with Jim and his warning and said that after he had watched him go around the bend in the road a hundred yards away, he started to light the cigarette that Corbett had given him. A wind was blowing, and to protect the flame of the match, he bent forward, and while in this position, he was seized from behind by the right shoulder and pulled backwards. His final thought was of the party who had just left him, but unfortunately, his call for help was not heard by them. Help, however, was at hand. For soon, as the buffaloes heard the cry, they mingled out with the growl of the tigress and charged onto the road and drove the tigress off. His shoulder and arm was broken, and with great difficulty the man managed to climb on the back of one of his brave rescuers, and followed by the rest of the herd, he reached home. The villagers tied up his wounds as best they could and carried him 30 miles non-stop to Haldwan Hospital, where sadly, he died after admission. Corbett had been living on the road in an open tent, a hundred yards from the closest human settlement for a month. He'd been wandering through jungles from dawn to dusk, sometimes dressing like a woman and cutting grass in places where no local woman would venture. The man-eater had probably missed him many opportunities to add him to his bag during this time, and now, during a last attempt, she had very accidentally come across this unfortunate man and claimed him as one of his final victims. This close encounter would mark the end of the first hunt for the tiger of Chowgar. Jim had been out in the wilderness for ages now and needed was needed elsewhere. However, Corbett would return to the Camoan region the following year to start the second hunt for the tigress. And that is where we will pick up next week on part three of the Tiger of Chowga. And there you have it. Guys, like I said, a much more in-depth story than I was expecting when I first started this story back in March of 2023. Next week, we will... continue we will go into the second hunt and i believe potentially we might have a part four which we will conclude this story with with the actual killing of the tiger spoiler alert he gets her but not before the tiger gets a few more people what yeah what a wild story my favorite part of that story is is the very end jim meets this guy sitting on the road and tells him hey man the tiger is still around you should go home and the guy's like yeah I, i will and then just after the corporate left the tiger attacks the man that was sitting there and then the buffaloes save his life. The buffalo chase, chase the tiger off, and he climbs up onto the back of one of the buffalo, and then they take him back to the village. It's just such a sad story that the guy died anyway. Very upsetting. So yeah, a few people attacked by the tiger during the story. Some of the women really badly mauled. One of them died, but one of them you know, happily made it, thanks to the bottle of, I don't know, the, the, the elixir that the doctor had given Jim Corbett a year earlier. Yeah. What a story. All right, we're going to leave it there, guys. We will take a break. We may hear some messages. We may not. But we'll be back with the rest of the episode very, very soon. Don't go anywhere. All right, and we are back. Did you enjoy that ad that played? Maybe. I don't know if an ad played. Maybe it did. I hope I got some. I got... I get like one cent per play. Go buy some merch. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, let's move on, everyone, to the one of my favorite segments of the day, the scratch of the day. 
Scratch of the Day segment, of course, the segment of the show where we read news articles together that uh, relate to animal-human conflict, animal attack, uh, all that kind of stuff. I read it live. I want to learn with you. I'm not teaching you. I'm learning here with you. This is a sad story. (laughs) Sorry. Just going to straight up say it. Sad story to begin with. This one is, it does involve the death of a child, a baby, pretty much. So, you know, maybe skip forward five minutes. We'll see. This is, where is this from? KSLA News. I believe it's like a Los Angeles area website. The headline reads, quote, no parent expects to not see their child again. Uh, end quote. Mother grieves 17-month-old son killed in apparent animal attack. This is in Haynesville, Los Angeles. A Claiborne Parish family would be celebrating the second birthday of D'Angelo Zach Manning this year, but instead they're mourning him. His life was tragically cut short when, in September 18- when on September 18th, 2023, he and his two brothers were staying with a babysitter in Haynesville. Quote, They were trusted to take care of my kids that morning, said Angela Marquez, the mother. According to reports from the Claiborne Parish Sheriff's Office, two of the children, who were ages one and four, wandered out of the house of the 100 block of Winkler Road and into a a wooded area. Marquez says her boys were missing for several hours before they were found half a mile away from the babysitter's house. Quote, Things like this are not an accident. You do not just let a kid be found half a mile away and be found dead, she said. D'Angelo, also known as Snoopy to his family, did not survive the animal attack due to excessive blood loss. However, his four-year-old brother did, but is traumatizing from witnessing the incident. Jesus, yeah, I can imagine. No parent expects not to see their child again. No parent expects for their child to leave in such a horrible way. The incident remains under investigation by the sheriff's office. There have been no arrests made in this case. However, the child's mother said she believes the babysitter is at fault. Quote, she was not watching my kid like she was supposed to. No one has been held responsible for what happened. Fuck. Yep, sad. Jesus, so sad. What a bad first one to come to in 2024. I'm so sorry. Yeah, terrible. That's obviously sad. I I mean, maybe the babysitter is at fault there. I don't know. There was very few details on what animal the attack was from. Probably like a wild dog or something like that. I don't know. What's in California? Mountain lions? Yeah, pretty sad. Okay, sorry. Hold on. i got to fucking allow ads to read this shit. God damn it. All right, sorry. I don't have much more to say about that last story. It's just very tragic and sad, and I wish that wasn't the first one I picked to open. But we'll do we'll do the next one now. This one's from the Sacramento Bee. So Sacramento, also in California, I believe the capital of California, right? I, I always thought the capital of California was um, Los Angeles or San Francisco, but it's apparently Sacramento, I think. I could be completely wrong. The Sacramento Bee, very cute name for a publication, by the way. Headline reads, Bobcat, still at large, after attack sends 66-year-old to the hospital. Arizona officials say, oh, this must be in Arizona. Okay. Is there a Sacramento in Arizona? I don't know. Whatever. Let's read the story. A bobcat attacked a 66-year-old at an Arizona National Park, officials say. Now, wildlife officers are searching for the animal that's still at large. The animal bit and scratched the person on Sunday, January 21st, or 2024, in Saguro National Park East, the Arizona Game and Fish Department in Tucson said in a Facebook post. The person was taken to the emergency room for their injuries and then released, wildlife officials said. Officials say they suspect the bobcat has rabies. Anyone who sees the animal should call this number. I'm not going to read it out. Saguaro National Park is separated into eastern and western sections around Tucson. The eastern section of the park is 20 miles southeast of downtown Tucson. Bobcats are common in Arizona and the Sonoran Desert. Is it Sonoran? Sonoran Desert. The animals have tan fur with dark spots and a short tail. They can be found in rimrock uh, rim areas, on the outskirts of urban areas, or in the backyards with brush and shrubbery, officials say. The animal may wander into a person's property when it's looking for food, water, or shelter, officials say. Bobcat attacks, however, are not common, wildlife officials say. When they do happen, they are typically tied to rabies. A rabid bobcat may be foaming at the mouth, acting erratic, or appear to be paralyzed and slow-moving. 
Anyone who sees an animal acting like this should stay away and call 911 or the closest game and fish office. Immediate medical attention should be short, should be sought if someone is bitten by a bobcat. Yeah, and that's because uh, yeah, rabies, man. Rabies is uh friggin' nuts. It's like 100% fatal if you don't get it in time. Yeah, damn. Okay, bobcat. I don't know if that's the first bobcat story we've had on the Yeah, I think it might be. I don't remember talking about bobcats on the show before. We've had coyotes and we've had, you know, mountain lions. I don't think we've had bobcats. Okay, final story. This one hits a bit closer to home. Uh, This is an Australian story. Over the break, a young surfer was fatally killed by a shark last month. And yeah, they they were farewell. So uh, this is from ABC News. Kai Cowley was the name of the victim. Kai Cowley, victim of fatal shark attack, farewelled by hundreds at beach funeral service. Teenage surfer Kai Cowley has been remembered as someone who spread kindness to those around him, as family and friends pay tribute almost one month after his death. The 15-year-old died after being attacked by a shark while surfing at Ethel Beach on South Australia's York Peninsula on December 28th. On Monday, a service for Kai was held at a popular surf spot in Seaford known as The Bowl, where members of Adelaide's surfing and sporting communities wore club colours to show their support. Speaking at the funeral, Kai's father, Tim Cowley, said his son filled people's lives with so many beautiful memories. Quote, It's so cruel that you've been taken away from us at such a young age, he said. I'm trying to take some peace in knowing how much you achieved in the 15 years that you were here, and how you spent those 15 years spreading kindness to all those around you. We don't know where we go when we die, but I pray that one day I'll get to see you again. If you can take something from Kai's passing, live like Kai. Truly love with all your heart. Don't waste a moment. Don't sweat the small stuff and laugh with your mates. Quote, we love you, mate, forever and ever. Mr. Cowley described Kai as an adventurous outdoor kid who loved getting involved in sports. From basketball to soccer to footy to skateboarding to bike riding, whatever it was didn't matter because it was all about hanging out with the boys that he was doing it with, he said. But of course... Predominantly, the sport that he loved was surfing. Mr. Cowley said Kai's love for surfing started when he was about seven years old, when he joined the Micro Groms Junior Surf Club. Before we knew it, all of our weekends were taken up with chasing waves, he said. He then joined Seaview Road Board Riders when he was about 10, where he started competing in senior competitions. As he progressed, he started competing in state titles and other numerous competitions around the state, even getting the opportunity to represent the school, his school, at the Australian Junior Surf titles in 2022. Mr. Cowley said during Kai's time spent surfing, he had made unbelievable friendships, many of whom were present at the funeral. He spent so much time surfing this break behind me that we can call the ball, Mr. Cowley said. Mr. Cowley said it was the surf trips he took with his son that he cherished the most, and that he recalled sitting on the beach and watching his beautiful boy do what he loved. It was the time we spent driving there together in the car, the time we spent surfing out there together in the water, and the time we'd call into the bakery and have lunch together and talk about our waves. This is what I will truly miss, he said. He said even more than his love for surfing was his love for family, especially his younger brother Jet. Kai absolutely loved you, mate, Mr. Cowley said, speaking to his youngest son. Whether it was play fighting with you, jumping on the trampoline, helping you get waves, or just laughing together at dumb stuff on the phone, I know you meant the world to him. I hope you don't forget those special times. Jeff Cowley described Kai as the best brig brother ever. I loved him so much, he said. I'm really going to miss hanging out with him and and him teaching me cool stuff. At the end of the service, attendees were invited to sprinkle sand collected from 41 surf locations around the state into the ocean before they formed a guard of honour. The the Seaview Road board riders will hold a paddle-out event on Saturday at the Bowl in Seaford. That's so sad, man. Damn. As I was reading about that, like, as I was reading that, you know, all the beautiful things his father said, a lot of it really I can relate to. I think a lot of that is, is very Australian, like a young kid growing up in coastal Australia like I did. A lot of it relates. I'm not a surfer at all. I'm going to read, there's a related story. Let's read an earlier story about Kai. This is what was reported when they identified the victim. Yeah. The victim of Thursday, this is, sorry, this news article is from the 29th of December, so a day after it happened. 
The victim of Thursday's deadly shark attack off South Australia's York Peninsula has been identified as 15-year-old Kai Cowley, who is being remembered as a talented and dearly loved boy. The boy from Maslin Beach in Adelaide South died in the attack near Ethel Beach on Thursday afternoon. Seaview Road board riders Kai Surf Club said the boy was a third-generation roader following in the footsteps of his grandfather and uncle, and his death had left the club in disbelief and devastation. He was a standout, the club wrote on Facebook. He helped the little Groms, made their training fun, and they all looked up to him. Kai was one of our top Groms and was due to represent the club at the board riders battle in March. We will surf this for you, Kai, with all our heart and soul. Very sad. I'm going to see if there's a news article of the day. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, this is another one. This is reported the day of. A teenage boy has been killed in a shark attack at a popular tourism and surfing spot in South Australia. SA Police said it had received a report that a person had been seriously injured near Ethel Beach and responded to the incident on the southwestern tip of the peninsula at 1.30pm. Police have since confirmed the teenage victim died in the attack and said a report was now being prepared for the coroner. Sadly, the body of a teenage boy was recovered from the water, police said. Ethel Beach is located at Diablo Guana Inns National Park and the nearest town is Marion Bay. Yeah. Jesus. So sad. I wonder if the... Give me one second. Yeah, I just... I went to the Wikipedia list for fatal shark attacks in Australia just to see if it had been updated. And yeah, yeah, 2023, 28th of December off Ethel Beach in York Peninsula, Kai Cowley, 15 years old. The body was recovered and he was killed by a great white shark. Damn. That's very sad. Obviously, thoughts and prayers, if you believe in that kind of stuff, go to Kai's family. Yeah, wow, what a what a depressing first edition of Scratch the Day for 2024. Awful. Well, let's try to pick that mood back up, guys, with um, the Wacky Weirdo of the Week. Now, this segment is, you know, it's, it's um, for people who do the wrong thing when animals are involved. And... I thought maybe we could try to find a funny one, but unfortunately, nothing funny about this one at all. These two brothers who terrorized New Forest and tortured animals have been jailed. So this is from Sky News, and it was reported on the 21st of January, 2024. Brothers who tortured animals on camera and terrorized New Forest residents have been jailed. The pair would harm wildlife in the night, including an incident where one brother held a deer down while the other hit it over the head with a blunt object. Fucking Christ. These fucking goobers. Oh, God. I'm going to say their names because fuck them. I want people to know what they did. Kristen Cooper and Todd Cooper. They look like absolute pieces of shit. Okay. Two brothers who filmed themselves torturing animals and, quote, terrorized residents in the Hampshire area, have been jailed for a total of eight years and eight months. It's not long enough. Siblings, Kristen Cooper, 24 years old, and Todd Cooper, 29 years old, were sentenced to jail for assault, animal cruelty, and possession of offensive weapons. Videos on Kristen's phone showed the pair harming various animals during the night, which a vet called the worst case of animal cruelty that they had seen in 24 years of the profession. The younger brother caused suffering to deer and hares, and in some cases he would encourage dogs to attack wild animals. Kristen admitted seven offences of causing unnecessary suffering to a protected animal and was disqualified from owning a dog for 10 years. He was sentenced to two years in prison in relation to those charges. Todd admitted to animal cruelty offences that involved him and his brother holding down a deer while he struck it over the head with a blunt object. Todd was sentenced to eight months behind bars in relation to the offence. During their trial in August for assault and weapons offences, the court heard how the brothers, along with an accomplice, chased a man into a shop, pushed him on the floor, and fired a catapult his way. What the fuck? There was no resulting injuries from the incident, but the trio fled the scene. On the evening of the same day, the brothers rammed an SUV into the back of a Vauxhall Astra, pushing it into a parked car, then vandalized the vehicle using a crowbar, baseball bat, and ball bearings fired from a catapult. What the fuck is with these guys and catapults? They were found guilty of two counts of assault, 
occasioning actual bodily harm, two counts of making threats to cause injury with offensive weapons, and one count of criminal damage, and each jailed for three years in relation to these offences. Sergeant Paul Buckland of the Criminal Investigation Department said the incident would have been extremely traumatic for the victims. He added, It is abundantly clear that these two men believe they could terrorise New Forest residents with impunity, with a total disregard of any consequences. On the wildlife abuse, Aghard Thomas, Crown Prosecution Service Wessex Wildlife Lead, said, This was a shocking case involving unimaginable violence and cruelty to animals on a level that I have thankfully rarely seen before. Kristen's total sentence is five years, and Todd's is three years and eight months. Both men will serve at least half of their sentence before being eligible for release on license. Kristen will also be subject to a criminal behaviour order for 10 years, and he and Todd are bound by a restraining order to prevent them from having any contact with their two victims. Wow. Okay. Those are the wacky weirdos of the week. I feel like maybe wacky weirdo is a bit too much of a charitable, like a funny thing for these two jackasses, these absolute jackalopes. If anyone knows anyone in prison, and this is not like, I'm not actually saying this, it's clearly a joke, but like maybe you should shiv them in prison and kill them. Again, that's a joke. That is satire and parody and is protected by something, something. Kill them. That was a joke. Don't kill them. I don't know. I think I'm legally not supposed to say kill people on podcasts, so don't kill them. But hey, you know, whatever. (sighs) Okay. All right, guys. Episode 81. First episode back of 2024. I think we did really well there, didn't we? Great episode. Great listening. You guys did such a good job at listening all episodes. It's a long one, too. It's like an hour long. Thank you so much for everything over the... um, I do have some people I wanted to shout out. Um... So I got a really nice message from uh, a listener who runs a company called Man Down Packages, and I think we're going to hear from them shortly in the future. Joe, Joe, who runs Man Down Packages, been a listener of the show for a very long time and has been lovely to you know contact the podcast every now and again. Joe told me that he recently found out he's going to be a dad. And so his head is currently swim- swimming, he says. So I just wanted to, on behalf of all of the listeners in the Man in the Nation, uh, wish Joe and his partner a congratulations, a mazel tov. Am I allowed to say that? A mazel? Well done, Joe. You're going to have a baby. You did it. You bloody did it. Don't raise the baby to be one of those kinds of guys who goes and hits deer in the head with blunt objects. I'm sure you'll do it. You guys will do a great job. Anyway, maybe go follow Man Down Packages on Instagram, everyone, to, to show your support for Joe and his lovely wife. Yes, that was great. A few other people messaged me. I got a message from, I don't know their actual name on Instagram. I'm not going to read the name, but she loves the show, helps her go to sleep, which is like, at first it was like, oh, I'm glad my hard work puts you to sleep. But then I thought, you know what? I listen to true crime podcasts and YouTube videos every night to make me go to sleep. And I fucking love those con- that content and I love those creators. So I'm not going to take offense to that. Thank you very much. Uh, she also requests some stories about the Amazon. So I think we will have to look into that within the next few episodes. After I finish this series, we will look at the Amazon again. Yeah, plenty of other people to shout out. I'll, I'll do those again in the future. One more reminder, guys, there is a website now. Please go to maneaterspod.com and you can look at some merchandise. That's the probably the best way you can help me out financially now is to buy merch because I get a little portion of that. I've tried to make it as cheap as possible because I know it, like it's, it's cost of living. Everyone's getting killed with inflation, including myself. So I tried to make the profit margins for myself as small as possible, but I do get a little kickback from it. So buy a t-shirt. It's in Australian dollars. So it's actually when you look at it, if you're from America and you're like, oh, like 20 bucks for a t-shirt for you, that's closer to like 10 bucks, which is like pretty good. So you can order that. It doesn't arrive quickly. It's not that kind of website, but you'll get it eventually. I get some dosh. It's it's win, 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 right? Win, win, win. So yeah, check out the website. Because it's the first week back, I just want to say a few like housekeeping things. We do have a Patreon. You can follow it. Find Manages on Patreon. It's just support us that way. It would be so appreciated. I know like you can't, not everyone can do it, but if you can, even just for a month, it really would help me out. I've had a few extra payments I've had to make in recent months. That's a longer story that I need to get into. But yeah, uh, that, that would be cool. 
Wonderbar. Um, follow the podcast on all the places you listen to your podcast, if it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Make sure you follow it and click a bell if there's a bell so you get notified when a new episode comes out. Make sure you follow us on all the um, all the bullshit on Instagram at Man It Is Podcast at Jimothy Chaps. All the social media, you know, it's all in the it's all in the bio. Do all the things in the bio. That's gonna do it. We'll see you next week for another episode of Man Eaters, part three of the Tiger of Chowgar, some more scratches of the day, another wacky weirdo of the week. I can't wait. Have a fantastic seven days, my friends. Stay safe out there because as we've learned, oh boy, it's a jungle out there. <laughs> <laughs>